will understand me briefly. So Moses brought, uh, excuse me, Exodus 15, verse 22 through verse 27. That's the sermon text. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the, in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to them, uh, to the Lord, excuse me, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Uh, Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word as always. We thank you for the many ways in which you give the law to your people, as you did here to Israel in the wilderness. And so you do again and again. We ask you that you might, as your word goes forth now from my mouth, and as it went uh, forth from uh, the words and the pages of Scripture, that you would add your blessing and that you would give your people a heart to hear and uh, an ear to obey. Uh, excuse me, uh, uh, an ear to hear and a heart to obey the words which go forth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, remember the setting here? As we saw last time, the song of Moses, we find Israel here on the banks of the Red Sea singing the song. Well, here we could say they've just sung their song. And the question is, what comes next? There they were, rejoicing in the Lord's mighty acts, lost, it would seem, in wonder, as a kind of Sabbath day that seemed for a moment to actually resemble the endless and the timeless praise of heaven itself. And thank God, we find our Sabbaths often to be such a blessing to us. It would seem for a brief time that we are lost in wonder, love, and praise, as the great hymn goes. Again, thinking of our worship as uh, comparable to Israel there, standing On the banks of the sea. Praising God. But for all the blessing that we find in such times. They are not indeed the timeless praise of heaven. Though uh, we might notice with Israel that they resemble the timeless praise of heaven. And the hard reality we soon find. Even if we are not prepared to accept it. And we can imagine that Israel here was in such a state. Is that the journey must resume. For however much we want to enjoy those foretastes of heaven forever, providence does not allow us. To stand in awe of the Lord's mighty works is indeed a picture of our eternal office in heaven. But it is not the only work for the saint to do until he gets there. And so we see here stated so plainly that Moses brought them out and they went out into the wilderness. Verse 22. And again, our focus becomes the wilderness, what it represents, what it contains. That is what we can hope to find there and where it leads. As I've said before, the wilderness itself becomes the place of Israel's habitation for a very long time. For the remainder of the five books of the Pentateuch, these remaining four books, Exodus uh, through Deuteronomy. 
And her time there not only makes up this major portion of scripture, but it becomes a special focus for the New Testament writers. Again, noting not just the life of the people of God at this time, but the setting. Especially as we've noticed time and again, the writer to the Hebrews, who encourages us to learn the lessons that Israel learned there in the wilderness. We've also noticed time and again, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 has the same exhortation. Not only that, but as we find Jesus himself driven into the wilderness as his first earthly task, having been filled with uh, the Spirit under John's baptism, the Spirit driving or compelling him into the wilderness and the temptations that he faced there before he took up his task among men, we understand the place of the wilderness is special and significant, not just uh, for Israel, but also for Jesus, then we might think as a corollary to that to ourselves as well. Even if we would rather stand on the banks of the Red Sea praising God forever. So I was thinking of this, it reminded me of Psalm 84, the sons of Korah longing for the courts of the Lord. Well, you might say, if you think of that hymn, they say, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord. Uh, how, how much we long to be there. In a sense, they were in the opposite situation. They were in the wilderness longing to get there. Well, that's where the saint spends a lot of his time. And the first point, then, is that the journey must resume, which is just to say there is still work to be done, still progress to be made for all of the uh, the triumphs and the, and the joys and the glories the people of God were experiencing. Even, as I say, uh, a foretaste of heaven, there was progress still to be made. They had not completed their journey. In fact, they had only just begun. Moses and the people recognized this. When in their song, they take up a prophetic note. Let me read that again. Verses 13 uh, through 17. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as stone till your people pass over, O Lord. Till the people pass over whom you've purchased, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which you have established in the very song which they sung. They were looking forward to the journey, you might say. They were recognizing, that is, that God's works were not finished. God was leading them somewhere. And great victories lie in between, verses 14 through 16. Victories we'll read of later. God overthrowing not just Pharaoh, but their other enemies. And it is the great task they recognize in their song to follow him there. That is, wherever he might be leading them. Even as he says to the holy habitation, verses 13 and 17. God was leading his people in worship, he was leading his people to worship. Of course, we can take this in two senses, the holy habitation to which the Lord was leading them through the wilderness, both that of Jerusalem and most especially a second sense, a spiritual sense, but we know the truest sense of all, that which Jerusalem represented, the holy habitation which Israel found there, and that is the heavenly tabernacle which we read of in Hebrews, into which Christ has now gone and occupies and invites us to join him. In our songs and in our worship, and most especially at the end of our earthly pilgrimages. That's where the Lord is leading us. But the point is, 
Even our best Sabbaths do not bring us this far. We may stand upon the banks of the Red Sea, but we still do not stand in the heavenly Jerusalem. They only give us a taste and a rest, which strengthens us to take up our labors once more and follow God where he is leading us. But you see, the path to the heavenly city or the holy habitation is indirect, not direct. He does not lead us there immediately. But he leads us around into the wilderness, which is one of the great lessons of the wilderness experience, analogous as it is to the church's experience. We, too, are in the wilderness, not in the promised land. We might wish to get to heaven as soon as we are converted, but we are not in heaven as soon as we are converted. We must dwell here and pass through this way. The question we have was Israel's question. Why? Why does God lead his church through the wilderness? Well, perhaps we can find a few answers here. The simplest answer is that their God's special purpose for Israel and for the church is realized. He has something which he wishes to accomplish which he does accomplish in the wilderness, in which you might say he cannot accomplish elsewhere. That is why. But still we ask, what is that purpose? We know he wishes to lead them on to his holy habitation, and even, as I say, into heaven itself. But what is he seeking to achieve in between? Well, the point really isn't all that spectacular. We find it here in the text. The second point, the first point it was, the journey must resume. The second point is, The purpose of the wilderness. The wilderness is seen as a place of testing. Clearly, that is what we find here. Israel went three days journey into the wilderness from the Red Sea, but they had found no water and now their supplies were beginning to run out. And then when they came to the waters of Marah, they found the water too bitter to drink and they began to complain and to be a burden to Moses so that he then cried out to the Lord in prayer. What we see, as the text itself clearly states, is that the Lord was testing them there. Middle of verse 25, there he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. That's the point. The Lord was testing them. And when we see that the wilderness was also the place of Jesus' temptation, perhaps we are less surprised to see this. And we also find the same thing ourselves. As the life of the church is analogous to Israel in the wilderness. That whatever respite our Sabbaths bring to our souls. The six days that follow are filled with temptations and trials. The Christian life is one of wandering through the wilderness. Now, the wanderings of a pilgrim, not the aimless wanderings of Israel. We've, made, we've seen that in Hebrews chapter 11. But it is a wandering nonetheless through the wilderness. Well, if... The purpose of the wilderness is to be tested and to meet many trials and temptations. Let us at least be clear about one thing. Let no man say, as James says, that the Lord has tempted him. But the Lord surely brings trials into our lives. And he even leads us, as he did his own son in the flesh, to the place of temptation in order to test us and to see what is in us. And what he is testing in particular It's our willingness to obey. That's the purpose of every temptation, obviously. Will we falter and fall into sin? Or will we remain steadfast under the pressures of the temptation? Will we resist the devil so that he flees? Or will we give in? And so he says 
as though uh, to capture the purpose of the test. If you diligently, verse 26, heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you, which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. That was, uh, that was in summary, what the test was seeking to reveal. If they were willing to do this, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord. Of course, that was a test that they had just failed at the waters of Marah. And if you keep on reading, you will know they fail again and again and again. They never really do succeed. In essence, what we find here is the law comes to them in the wilderness. Uh, The test is this, not simply will you obey, but let us be even more specific. So we recognize uh, the setting in which the test comes to us. Not simply will you obey, but will you obey No matter what. That is the lesson the Israelites uh, illustrate here. And time and again as we go on. It is easy we find with Israel. And let us be frank in our own lives. It is easy beloved to worship God on the banks of the Red Sea. In seasons of blessing. Seasons of refreshment. Seasons in which the Lord's salvation is perfectly plain and evident to the people of God. But it isn't so easy to do so in the wilderness. It isn't so easy to maintain a spirit of faith and steadfastness to the Lord. When the trials and the temptations come, the wilderness again, let us be clear, is a place of testing. It is also tiresome, isn't it? Israel here was thirsty and they came to a place of water only uh, to find water that wasn't fit for drinking. What could better illustrate the futility and the frustration of this life? One problem is only met by another. But you see in all this, it isn't just the curse working itself out. The consequences of the sin of Adam and Eve. If that was all it was, we might be justified in our grumblings, perhaps. But it's really something greater. And we know it's something greater, especially for the church. God is saying to us in essence, and again, you have to read verse 26. I just read it. If you diligently obey my law. Then I'll bless you. But if you don't, then I'll curse you. That's the test. God is saying, in essence, as he tests and tries the church in the wilderness, what kind of obedience are you prepared to give? Will you still listen to and follow my ministers even when the waters run dry? I think it's especially noteworthy to see that they grumble against Moses here. And Moses became weary. They complained, verse 24, against Moses. If you read Matthew Henry, he makes a special point of that. Will you complain against my ministers, even when the waters run dry? And more importantly, will you listen to me always, the Lord is asking? Will you trust me even when it seems there are no waters at all? Or will you grumble at every difficulty you find along the way? Jesus himself tells us, you know, that tribulations are sure to come at the end of John chapter 16. Why is it that they that we still find them so surprising or worse, we treat them as settled realities that we hate when something goes wrong? I confess, I will often say, of course, of course, this is happening again, or of course, this doesn't work as though nothing could ever go right. Grumbling, murmuring, complaining. But this reveals my own contempt for God's procedure, my own protest and murmuring, as we find here at every difficulty. Has it ever occurred to you, beloved, as you consider Israel here, 
And surely this is one of the great lessons of Israel in the wilderness. That God hates complaining. It is something more than anything else that reveals unbelief in the heart. And that God hates the grumbling especially of his people. I confess I'm still learning it. I'm still with you in the wilderness. But it's one of the lessons that we ought to learn. That God leads us into the wilderness in order that we might learn. The highest and the purest form of godliness is found in the hearts of those humble saints like Moses here who humbly depend on God in the wilderness even where there is no water or where the water is too bitter to drink. Let us wait and see what the Lord will do. The test also reveals how the Lord himself we see uh, again in verse 26 is our provider and our physician. He does not lead us beloved out in vain nor to kill us though that was the suspicion of the people. God has brought us here only that we might die in the wilderness, but that is not his purpose. And if only we had faith like Moses, we would see it too. No, listen to what he says again in verse 26. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. I am your physician. I am your provision. The Lord is the one who heals you, he says. And we know he had just done this. He took, uh, or he, t- he took Moses to a bit of wood and told him, I want you to put that in the water. Not that there was any virtue in the wood, but just as a demonstration that this was something only the Lord could do. Another miracle by the hand of Moses. Demonstrating not so much the greatness of Moses, but the greatness of the Lord he served. Of course, we know, thinking again of the setting here of the wilderness and the purpose of the wilderness, we know the Lord might have just led them to a pure source of water. And why not? That is what we would do if we were the Lord. But that isn't what he does. Haven't we seen it already? All through Exodus, how it is that the Lord loves a challenge. How it is that he loves to lead his people into difficulty, if only that he might appear as their savior as their provider, as their physician. And how is it that we, after so many years, still fail to see this? Yes, he could make all things easy, and soon he will. And there in heaven, nothing will ever be hard again. There will be no hardships or trials there to endure. But here, in the wilderness, before we get there, his glory appears to us in the trials he sends. And so we ought to look for his glory to appear in the trials that he sends. The glory of his provision, the glory of his healing, the glory of his hand. And when he does so, when he sends trials, I mean, the humble saint who knows the Lord like Moses, as I've recently said, will simply wait with delight and expectation to see what the Lord will do. He won't grumble at the first instance of difficulty. Or at least if he does, he will immediately begin to chide himself for doing so. He will think, not of course this is going wrong again, but of course the Lord would make us thirsty, only to lead us to water which we cannot drink. That is just like the Lord. And so he will do what what Moses had lately told the people to do in chapter 14. Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Lord or for the Egyptians whom you see today, 
You shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. It is well, beloved, to see the Lord is our provider. This is one of the great lessons we learn in the wilderness. And really, we couldn't learn it anywhere else. This, too, is the great point of our Lord in chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount when he says this. Let me just turn there. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. They're familiar verses, but have you ever thought of them in terms of Israel dwelling in the wilderness? Jesus describing that experience. He says this. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Or we could add by complaining. So why do you worry about clothing, he says? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you not that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is uh, today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O uh, oh, uh, you, oh, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for after all these things the Gentiles seek? For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do you see there what Jesus is describing? He is describing the life of faith. And there you notice He chastises us, as he always does, for our lack of faith. Look at it, or listen at least again to verse 30. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Isn't God saying the same thing to Israel there in the wilderness? How is it that we... After all this time are still unbelieving, seeing how good God is to us. He even cares, as we know, for the birds of the air. Will he not also care for us, his little ones whom he so tenderly loves? And do we not realize, having some acquaintance, at least the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God consists of greater things than food and drink? As Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 14, verse 13, the kingdom of God is not a matter of food and drink. But of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, of course. Well, we might notice then in the third place, and I did say I would have something to say about the law. That is the centrality of the law. Uh, One of the first instances, it may be the first, I'm honestly not sure, of the law coming to Israel in the wilderness. I think it is. Well, the wilderness we see as a place of trial is also a place of law. A place in which the centrality of the law and the place of the people of God or the lives of the people of God becomes clear. It is there, just think of it, that the law is given. It isn't given in Egypt, the land of their bondage, nor is it given in the land of promise, but it is given in the wilderness. Just as it is there in the wilderness that it becomes clear whether we will observe God's law or no. And perhaps in that we might discover the reason why the law is given there and not elsewhere. Here is a fitting summary of the law. Let me read it again. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases 
on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. The law here we discover being summarized. We find the law summarized in many places in Scripture, this being one of them, demanding of our whole person. The law is not as the Pharisees later falsely uh, assumed in their teaching and in their practice, a mere outward obedience. The law doesn't require that, I mean. The law requires, as God makes plain in the giving of the law here, a diligent heeding of God's voice. Hasn't that been the emphasis in Hebrews? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart in unbelief as the Israelites did in the wilderness. God is saying to them so plainly, I want you to listen. Take to heart what I'm saying. Not only that, a doing what is right in his eyes and not our own. The one who belongs to the Lord and follows the Lord. The one who is being tested as a Christian knows that the thing that really matters is the will of God. A giving ear, he says, to his commandments and a keeping of all his statutes, not just some or, or our favorites, but all his statutes. What God is saying to Israel is what Jesus later says to us. I want all of you. I want your whole person. I want your heart. I want your will. I want your mind. I want your whole life. There isn't any part of you that I don't want. And so one here thinks of Jesus' summary of the law in Matthew 23. The sum of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your soul, strength, heart, and mind. And that is really the true impulse of the whole of the law in each of its particular commandments. It reveals whether we really have in our innermost being a love for God himself which drives us to obey him and for no other reason, and to hear him and to heed all his words and all his statutes. Just as Paul also tells us on the other side, it is a love for our brother which causes us to keep the law with respect to him, Romans chapter 13. It isn't love that makes the law unnecessary. It is love which, uh, which clarifies and which tells us the secret impulse and the true impulse of the law. The law keeper is the man who loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, strength and mind. And he loves his neighbor as himself. And so the question once more we find as the law comes to us in the place of testing is simply, do we really love God? Do we love him for his own sake and accept his authority simply because he is God? Do we in the wilderness, as Jesus himself said, depend not on bread alone, but on every word which proceeds from the mouth of God? Do we understand why a partial view and a partial acceptance of God's word and God's law will never do? It's because we're in the wilderness, beloved. And because we might very well die in the wilderness if we possess anything less than every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. The whole word of God. All his statutes. All his ordinances. We need, like Jesus himself, every word God has uttered. And nothing less. Our need is really that desperate. Isn't that also what we've been saying in our Hebrews 11 study on faith? Faith, by faith we believe it to be true. Whatever God reveals in his word and nothing less than that. But we also see, and we're bound to notice this here. We noticed it in Deuteronomy chapter 28. How connected with the giving of the law is the happiness of God's people. Our own happiness is bound up with our keeping of the law. Look at how he says it again. I'll read verse 26 once more. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord, you see there's a condition. 
your God and do what is right in his sight. Give ear to his commandments and keep all the statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your God who heals you. There is a conditionality of the happiness of the people of God in the wilderness. And that is placed upon their willingness to keep the law of God. Now, do not tell me that God is here placing Israel under a covenant of works. Because he wasn't. I hardly feel I need to say that again, given all that I've been saying thus far, both morning and evening, about the covenant that God establishes with Moses, the old covenant, as a covenant of grace. Still, that covenant is demanding and exacting. But was it really any different with Abraham? I'm not sure I can find the verse, but let me try. I thought of it this afternoon, but I didn't think to write it down. Genesis 17, verse 9. This is what God says to Abraham. Now, tell me if this is a covenant of works. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of, his, of, uh, of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign uh, of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or brought or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is brought uh, with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Ah, this was the verse actually. It's earlier on, it's verse 1. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And then he later says, if you don't, if you break the covenant, well, then I'll cut you off. I'll curse you. Don't tell me that Moses was a covenant of works unless you're prepared to say the same thing about Abraham. The covenant, beloved, is always demanding and exacting. Have you ever read the Gospels? What Jesus says to his disciples, what he says to us. And sure, and yet surely we would never call that a covenant of works. No, the righteous will ever live by faith. And so it was here. Faith in God's word, faith in God's promise. But yes, also a faith which we have seen, which is prepared to obey the commands. And because of this, he makes the people's happiness to depend upon it. The happiness and the welfare of the church to depend upon her obedience. Will you obey, he asks. Will you keep this law of mine? Well, he says, then I will appear as your physician. As I just have, making the waters sweet, the bitter waters. Note well, God is saying, in the bitter waters turned pure, what God can do. And then make your faith to depend upon that. Stake your faith and your life upon that. And thus he says, in giving his law, do not forsake me, turning away in unbelief and disobedience, or else you may soon find the wrath which befell Egypt. Soon befall yourself. Do we really think that it can be otherwise, even for the church? Do we imagine that just because we belong to the visible church, that we can safely sin? There is no greater folly, beloved. And no people ever demonstrated this so fully, the folly of this, and so terribly as the people of Israel in the wilderness. And so it is against this backdrop that we read Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. 
the unbelief and the folly of Israel. They heard the word, they heard the warnings, and yet they disobeyed. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. God says, tried me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my way. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if... We hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Well, let me keep reading for uh, he who uh, for who having heard rebelled. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry? Forty years. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Therefore, he says, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. In other words, learn the lesson. Heed the word of God, lest we be guilty of the same folly. Let us be diligent, he says, verse 11. Therefore, to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience, the example of Israel in the wilderness. We find many such warnings throughout the book of Hebrews. I could read them, uh, but I think I think we've gotten the idea. Only I would say, as we go on reading, let us constantly bear those warnings in mind. I mean, reading and, and hearing sermons on, on, on Exodus and, and indeed beyond as we go through with them these 40 years. Let us bear such passages in mind. And let us fear lest we should fall as they did into the same kind of sin and the same kind of unbelief. God was calling Israel to a life of principled obedience, but that is not what he finds in Israel. And let that ever serve as a warning to the church. So we find that the setting of the wilderness is a place of law. But I want to end on a happier note. As we find here, there are many pleasant places of refreshment God has prepared for us along the way in the wilderness. I've already noted that our Sabbaths are often such times for us, times uh, of, of happiness and refreshment and blessing. Uh, we wish our Sabbaths could be everlasting and eternal, and one day they will be, but not yet. Well, this is evident, the blessings we find along the way looking at Israel here, not only in the refreshing waters of Marah, once turned uh, sweet from bitterness, but especially what we read in verse 27. Look at the last verse. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. God, for a brief time, we find they had just been tested by the waters of Mara. Now he brings them to Elam. And for a brief time, he makes the desert an oasis, a place of blessing and refreshment. Matthew Henry says this. Note, God can find places of refreshment for his people, even in the wilderness of this world. The truth is, for all the difficulties we find in the wilderness, there are also many surprising blessings we find as well along the way. God is wise in trying his people. He knows how to draw out of them what is really there, testing us, as he did Israel here. 
But he also knows when to give relief, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, speaking of the wilderness community, that no temptation befalls us but that which is common to man, and he provides a way of escape. He knows when to give relief, even when he brings us to the place and the season of trial. And thank God it is so. Thank him that the wilderness is not all trial and all suffering. There are indeed many happy seasons of blessing in the Christian life for all its difficulties. And when such seasons of blessing should come, it's all right, as we see here, to camp there by the waters, as it were. We ought to allow these times to do their proper work for hardships we know are likely to follow. But we must equally realize, as I began, that seasons of blessing do not last in this world. However happy, however refreshing they may be, the hand of God. In truth, nothing lasts here. And that is the point we're meant to see. The trials don't last forever, but neither do the blessings. Not so long as we find ourselves in the wilderness. To quote Matthew Henry again, Yet whatever our delights may be in the land of our pilgrimage, we must remember that we do but encamp by them for a time. That here we have no continuing city. And so as we find them camping here at the end of verse, uh, at the end of chapter 15, verse 27, we will find them in the very next verse, chapter 16, verse 1, taking up their journey again. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. And on and on we'll go. The journey again resumes. And such always is the life of the pilgrim until he reaches his destination at last. With that in mind, let us stand together and sing hymn number 527. <clears throat>